Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week, I'm joined by Chef Nick Gore. He's the owner and executive chef over at Gourmet Pizza in the Italian Village here in Columbus, Ohio, right off 4th Street. If you've never been, make sure to stop in, check them out. Columbus has a lot of pizza places. Gourmet Pizza is the best, or if not the best, among the best pizza places we have in the city. I have been known to be a bit of a pizza snob, and I am very particular on the pizza places that I would recommend to anyone. Gourmet is one of the few that I would recommend to somebody coming to Columbus, first time, visiting, never had it, whatever. It's super original. I mean, it gets classified as Neapolitan pizza. We kind of get into that on the podcast, kind of towards the middle of the episode. But even so, it's just original. There's different flavor combinations that they put on their pizza that nobody else is doing. It's, you know, it's super creative too as well. I mean, the chef's choice, you don't know what you're going to get. It's going to be random stuff, but it all works. And even if you order the chef's choice, like you could go and be like, I want two chef's choices. They're not going to make the same chef's choice pizza both times for you. So it's always something different. I mean, you can get the normal, you know, cheese pizza or pepperoni pizza, like they'll happily do that, but they have a lot more kind of creativity than other pizza places normally do where it's, you know, you usually get a cheese, a sausage, pepperoni. Maybe there's one that's got some bacon or ham or something on it too as well. And like a, a veggie pizza or something, but bunch of different combinations. Combinations are pretty endless there. So it's an awesome spot too as well. Like you can actually go and dine in and eat there. It's got that old, like that old school kind of feel, you know, like, like the wood and it's got, you know, 70 coats of lacquer on it kind of deal. Like back in the day when, you know, you're a kid and everything, some different spots that you've been to. So there's definitely a kind of throwback quality to the interior, just stuff they do around the restaurant too. Little journals, talk formats and stuff on certain days and they throw an annual Christmas party in September. We cover all that in the episode and how Gourmet originally got started. You know, he started out as a pop-up. I mean, he was working in advertising for years before that. So we run through it all and, and get to talk pizza. You know, super excited to eventually have somebody on the podcast who specializes in pizza and talk about pizza and everything. And, and finally, you know, kind of got to check that box selfishly, but it's an awesome conversation. And I can't recommend them enough. Um, if you never had them, make sure to get over there. Give them a try. You won't regret it. It's awesome pizza. So you can follow them on Instagram at Gourmet Pizza. It's real simple. It's G-O-R-E pizza. That's pretty much it. So you can follow us on Instagram too at Spoon Mob. Uh, check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Uh, make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you use for your podcast. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, pretty much anything. You can find us on, so make sure to check all that stuff out. Feel free to write into the podcast any questions, comments, feedback. If you have a question that you ever thought about, you wanted to ask a chef or a sommelier, never got the chance or whatever, feel free to send that in. Uh, it will eventually get featured on the podcast once we have a guest that it fits really well with. And we go through the questions that we receive and kind of match them up with the guests that are coming up as to you know what works best. So, And, and when that happens, you know we'll hit you back and be like, hey, it's going to be on this episode. So you can either go through the contact portal on the website or spoonmob at yahoo.com is an email address you can send it to as well. But without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Nick Gore, the chef and owner of Gourmet Pizza here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for agreeing to do this, coming on. Super excited to have you on. You're the first pizza maker that we've had on the podcast. So super excited to talk about that stuff. Admittedly, I didn't really know you existed, even having driven through Italian Village and driven right by your place numerous times over the years. That huge sign didn't get you? 
No, I, I really didn't know anything about it until Joe Galati from Commune came on the podcast and recommended you guys. And we tried it and it's amazing pizza. And Joe's right. You could eat a whole bunch of it and you don't have like this gut bomb um, that just makes you want to be a slug. Joe eats more gourmet pizza in one sitting than any other customer we have. I am certain of that. But we were able to try it and, and love it. And now it's kind of like our go-to spot. You know, I mean, every once in a while, I'll venture, you know, into, I really like Detroit style pizza. Who's your favorite Detroit? I just tried one from Gold Belly. It's this guy out in LA. I think it's called like D-Town Pizza. It was really good. He's like out in LA, but I was really, really impressed with it. Jets is good and stuff like that too as well. You know, I've had the Buddy's Pizza, which is the famous one from Detroit. That one I thought was so-so, but... I would say probably that recent one I had, that D-Town. It's really, really good. You were in L.A.? No, you can get it through Gold Belly. So basically, he's out in L.A., but they'll make the pizza, they'll freeze it, and then they'll ship it to you. And Gold Belly is really good for pizza, and then I would say like barbecue, like brisket and stuff, because they'll just freeze that stuff and then you just kind of reheat it. And it works really well. Some of the other stuff, like desserts and stuff, I, I think that gets a little here or there, but... But yeah, I'd say that was probably the best. But I want to get to all the stuff that you're doing now and everything. But I want to start all the way back at the beginning. How did you first get into food? How did you first get into restaurants? Because I know Gourmet starts out as a pop-up. But how did you get into that lane originally? Because you were working in advertising at one point. It's true. You've done your homework. So if we're going back, I suppose, let's go back to the beginning, right? Let's go back to where it all started because that's where this journey really began. And that was when I was around 13 or 14. I got my first job as a bus boy back when there was $1.75 an hour plus tip out, which was like 50 cents or a dollar from all those people that were making tons of money. But that was my first real job. And I just loved the access to food because we didn't have a lot of resources when I was little. So being able to fancy food, you know, at Padula's Italian restaurant was just more enticing than the job or the money. But then I quickly got a job at a place called Krause's Pizza on Amherst Road. This is all in Massillon, Ohio, which is a couple hours northeast. I worked at Krause's Pizza, which is the number one Krause's. There's probably like 30 of them by now, but or more. But that was the first one. And Larry Krause was still a part of the organization at that time. And I really loved that guy. Super charismatic. I mean, he just he lived the life he wanted to live. And I think upon reflecting on seeing him live that way, that's probably what brought me to opening my own restaurant. I'm getting ahead of myself there about four years at Krause's Pizza on Amherst Road. Then I graduated high school and went to uh, college in Florida. I worked at a Hungry Howie's for a couple of years, and that got me comfortable with like the process of, you know, the mechanizing of food and the organizational aspects of that. I think they had it down because they're a corporate. But what really brought me back to food, I left food for a while, went to college, got a job in advertising, as you mentioned. And I started making pizza on my own. Well, I guess there's one piece that is missing in all that story. That, and I worked for Elena Shock, Elena's Food and Wine. Are you familiar with that place? Yeah, she's got her own kind of like in-home catering thing she started doing and, and whatnot. Yeah. I want to hire that lady to do that. I just need to have a reason to hire. <laughs> I don't celebrate anything that's that fancy enough to, to bring Elena in. So maybe we should just make something. Uh, when I moved to Columbus, I worked at a cab company for a few minutes and then uh, uh, got a job at Elena's Food and Wine. It was within walking distance and I didn't have a car at the time. So I started there as a kitchen bitch and I had never been a kitchen bitch before. <laughs> what a demoralizing and educational experience that was. 
Elena is notoriously a hard ass in the restaurant industry. And, you know, somebody brings some meat that didn't look right. Get this the fuck out of my kitchen kind of thing. She showed me, you know, that culture. And it's almost like, you know, I think of it as toxic. But at the same time, there's a level of uh, articulation that is necessary to be successful in the restaurant industry. So she was not like toxic masculinity. She was just a hard ass woman. And I think she showed me what it was to work from scratch, right? So I worked at a a old school German pizza restaurant. I worked at Hungry Howie's, super corporate, gross, you know, everything is made someplace that no one's ever seen before and never will. And then I worked at Elena's where she was working with local farms, local people. She was hyper seasonal. And I didn't even know that kind of food existed. I did not understand that you could get, you know, fruit of the moon shiitakes from some guy who grows them in a cave over there. She kind of helped me see that. But I went away from Elena's uh, to get into corporate America. And I think after a decade in corporate America, I had enough. But around you know, year four or year five, I started considering you know, all of the food history that I've had job-wise and just started putting it all together in my head and wanted to see if I could. The only thing I ever had to do was you know, make dough from scratch. So I was like, I, I bet I could do that. So I met a, a lady who became my ex-wife through time. We started uh, Pizza Sunday, where we would just make pizza every Sunday, and it would just she and I, and I was just seeing if I could do it. And after a few kind of, maybe almost a year of doing it, just to see if I could, she started inviting friends, and I was like, wait a minute, we could invite people? <laughs> and then it became a very, uh, you get a lot of friends when you start making free pizza every Sunday, and it quickly turned into something other than me and, and my future ex-wife. With your career in advertising, I mean, how did you fall into advertising? Well, I went to school for graphic design. I was always interested in, um, when I was in high school, I took radio TV uh, as like, uh, I was interested in the, uh, the art of broadcast and video and all that stuff. And I went to college for digital media. I was interested in, you know, just the manipulation of imagery and big into composition. I think all of my art forms are a form of composition. And that was the one that seemed like I could make money off of. So I became a compositional uh, digital artist and it took me a while to find a job in the industry, but I eventually did. And it was to the Kroger Corporation. It was pretty, you know, drag and drop production type stuff. It was not very thrilling, but it did give me the ability to a lot of audiobooks. Um, I ran a catering company on the clock at Kroger for like four or five years. So they paid for me to answer phone calls, schedule things, emails, and just educate myself on how to, you know, care about personal finance. So it was a wonderful tool, but it certainly people tend to stick in those places. And I knew I wasn't going to, I just didn't know what was next. Do you remember the moment when you decided that you were basically done with corporate America? I think it was when we came up with the name. My, uh, I have a business partner. I'm in the process of buying them out. But uh, when we came up with the name for Gourmet Pizza, I was like, you know, my last name is Gore and it was made by me. And I'm very particular about, you know, self-discovery. I don't like replicating things. I mean, it's, it's, it's cool to learn and, and grow through other people's ideas. But in the end, I think the real magic of anything comes from self-creation. I think gourmet pizza was that thing where it's not that I didn't learn from other people, but I was never trying to replicate anything. I was never trying to make the best, you know, Neapolitan style pizza or do the thing that that person was doing over there. It's always been a, a journey of self-discovery. We came up with the name gourmet pizza and it really hit, you know, it was, it's important to me to, um, to make those things from, from my experience and my evolution. So we came up with gourmet pizza and I was like, well, shit, we gotta, we gotta open it now. <laughs> you know, I was done with corporate America a year after I got into it. <laughs> it took me nine years to find a way to get out. So 
it, you know, it was a great stepping stone. It helped. You're self-taught. I mean, do you ever think back and regret not going to some sort of like cooking school or, or anything like that? No. And I, I, as I just reflected on a moment ago, I'm a big proponent of self-discovery through your passions and your projects. And there's, I think the one thing that I maybe regret is, no, regret's a tricky word. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't think I would use that for any of the things because we are where we are based on what we know. And, you know, the shit that we run into walls just is there to teach us what we haven't figured out yet. If I did regret anything was just, you know, the function. I didn't really understand the functionality of being a business owner, interacting with a team. I had never built a team or managed a team before. I had never tried to be successful in a business fashion. It was always just something that, even when we were a catering company, I mean, I, I had a full-time job and I worked the weekends. So, I mean, it wasn't like I needed that or anything. It was what I wanted to do. It was how it was. I just kept saying yes. My, my goal was saying yes. But I think, you know, one of my strengths is uh, self-discovery. And anybody who's close to me might you, you call that any number of things. But I'm a, a self-reflector. I'm a big proponent of personal growth. And, and I think that, you know, incrementally learning these things on my own was the only way I could do it. If someone in Gourmet that's working there making pizzas with you and they're serious about becoming a, a chef or maybe even open their own pizza place one day, you know, somewhere else and they say, hey, you know, should I go to culinary school or should I go to Napoli and learn, you know, Neapolitan pizza? You'd say no. If you're in Naples and you're trying to learn how to make pizza, this is great. But I mean, you know, I think that you can see this answer in everything that we do. Well, one, I don't think it's you can either pay to learn how to cook or get paid to learn how to cook. And I think those two things, of those two options, I think the most clear thing in the world is find the thing that you love that someone's doing and work with them. If you don't know anyone that's doing it, then, you know, whatever, solve your problems. But I don't think paying to learn things that you can just, like I teach people how to do the, what I do all the time because I need help, you know what I mean? Somebody comes in here and starts working at Gourmet Pizza they're 10 or 20, you know, I got a 10 year old and I'm teaching him things. So whoever you are, if you need help and you're those helping hands, I'm going to teach you what I know and I'm going to pay you to learn because I need those hands. I don't see the added benefit of going to a culinary school or learning unless there's no one to learn from where you are. If you're doing something and there's just absolutely no ability I don't know if that's the kind of learning that you do and that's the regiment that you need. I'm a big fan of just make pizza every Sunday. You know, school for me was feeding my friends and I got a lot out of it and I'm not in debt because of it. I was in debt because of college. I probably wouldn't have done that either, hindsight. So like you mentioned, Gourmet originally starts out as kind of this pop-up in your backyard making pizzas on Sunday. And then I think it eventually gets to the point where there's so many people coming. You started having people bring toppings. Yeah, so it started in my kitchen. We were using my apartment style size oven, one pizza at a time. I can remember one Mother's Day, uh, my ex-wife was pregnant and we had this wonderful experience and it was like 45 or 50 people in this half of a duplex in Clintonville. And I think that was when it was just like, what's going on here? You know, what do we, what do we have? That was before we bought the wood-fired oven. So it wasn't always in the backyard. The wood-fired oven came as a, a uh, way to kind of evolve to a different style of pizza that was a little bit more creative and uh, artistic. I think that's what I've always loved about wood-fired pizza. I bought a mobile wood-fired oven from Bill Yerkes, who was the guy that ran Bono to Go. Are you familiar with Bono to Go? It was this little shack of a place that was, it's like Chambers Third. There's this like conglomerate of three, you know, where the uh, Kroger on Chambers is or wherever in, in, in Grandview. 
there was a gas station there. Or no, it wasn't a gas station. It was a convenience store. And then there was this little sliding metal thing. There was like five seats and a wood-fired oven. And it wasn't always open. But yeah, it was so weird. He was just a real minimalistic guy who had, you know, figured out how to make some wood-fired ovens. And he had one. He had given me his card like years. I'm, I'm one of those people, you give me a piece of paper and it's like in some vortex of paper hell within 10 seconds. But somehow I had been interested in buying a mobile wood-fired oven. And I had exactly $5,000 saved up in the bank. And I found his card in my wallet years later, the most unlikely of things. And I called him up and I was like, hey, I want to buy a mobile wood fired oven. He's like, well, I got one left and I'm, you know, selling all my stuff to go race cars. And, <laughs> and he was selling it for $5,000. So on the day that I went to sell it to him, he's like, oh, so that's 5,500 bucks. And I was like, no, it ain't. <laughs> I don't have $5,500. I have $5,000. I bought a Subaru that I could tow it around with. I went and picked up the oven and brought it home. I had no fucking clue how to use it. And I invited a bunch of people over and I couldn't get the fire started for like four hours. But anyways, the evolution of making pizza at home went from a home oven to a wood-fired oven. And once I had that wood-fired oven, it allowed me to say yes in whole new ways. So like somebody said, hey, I got a birthday party for my kids. We're at the park. Can you come and make pizza? Well, yes, I can. You know, it took me a while to charge money. That was a hard thing. Charging money for a hobby is a weird one. It takes some time. What was the biggest, I guess, difference in terms of quality of the pizza from your apartment oven to the wood-fired oven? So, you know, when it comes to pizza geekdom, there are people out there that have all these styles and categories completely honed in, have a lot of information and opinions. Like when I make pizza, I want to make pizza. When I eat pizza, I want to eat pizza. I don't really seek out styles. Well, I do now a little bit, but it's never. I've never been big on categorizing anything. I'm always confused. I always see the nuances of individuality in everything that I consume. So it's really hard for me to categorize things. But the biggest differences in any style of pizza is usually the temperature you cook at, how long, and that you know affects how long that pizza is in the oven. And the quicker you cook it, the more aggressive that it's cooked, the harder it is to balance, right? I mean, if you have people that are trying to do a Neapolitan style bake at home, even if they can like remove the safety on their oven cleaner and do all the weird shit that people do to get really high heat, there's still a nuance that is so delicate, a balance, uh, because you've got like ambient heat, top heat, floor heat, and all these things have to be the same for you to cook a pizza in 90 seconds. So, I mean, I think part of what drew me to wood fire was how articulate it was. You know, a home oven is very forgiving. It does not. There's a thing called oven spring, right? It's the way that dough rises when you put it in a hot place, a hot oven. Oven spring in a wood fired oven, rapid and, and expansive. And that's a lot of steam and a lot of action in a very short period of time. Whereas when you put it in a 400 or 450 degree oven, you've got a lot less aggressive oven spring and that's kind of like part of the story of it all it's a whole different ball game i don't remember exactly what your question but the differences in time and temperature become very artistic i think you got a lot more room to play uh we had an employee that used to always call it painting with fire my friend mark because what you're really doing is you know you put a a pizza in a super hot oven there's the fire on one side and you just keep rotating it and painting it with fire that is certainly not the case in a, in a home oven. So for like five years, you were just hustling, serving pizzas at one location and the next and the next? Yeah, pizza gypsies, I think we called ourselves. 
So over the course of that like five years, you know, was there ever a point that you weren't sure if it was going to turn the corner to like a standalone shop or were you always kind of looking for a space during that five years? I didn't start it to own a business. I never thought of myself as a business owner. There was never a point in my life before, uh, you know, this natural progression that I went through that I ever imagined that I would be a business owner. I actually did not think of myself as a as a natural born leader. I know how to inspire people. I got a big energy about me. But as far as, you know, like managing a team, it was never something I thought that I was good at. And I still don't know if I am. <laughs> oh, and I think it was a self-preservation decision. I didn't know what to do with myself. Broger was a soul-sucking corporate position. It certainly did not give as much as it took. And I think what I was discovering was, well, one, anytime I needed to do pizza, this was the first thing in my life where no matter what, I did it. You know, there's those things where it's like you start a practice and then all of a sudden you're like, ah, it's late. I forgot to do the thing. I'll just skip it this time. Pizza Sunday was one of those things where if I fell asleep on the couch at nine and I woke up and I'm like, oh shit, I need pizza tomorrow. I have to make dough. 1230. I'm like getting up like, oh shit, I got to make dough. You know, I'm up till three in the morning making dough in this huge wooden bowl. And and that was just for friends. So I think, you know, when I saw the excitement and what it gave back to me, that's when I just started following that. Um, I think they refer to it as a flow state, you know. When I, I read a book that uh, it was defining how to find your passion and it was look for the places where you're in a flow state or you forget time or you just say yes no matter what. And what I was discovering was this kept my energy and attention in a way that nothing ever did. So really what I was doing was just choosing to say yes. It was not, it was never a decision to be uh, a business owner. It was a decision to follow my excitement to find out who I was. The North Star of, you know, success in my world has been following my excitement. How many times did you wind up cooking at the NAP ICS pizza pizzazz competition? You know, that's funny because I was not, I did not have a business at that time and they only take pizza businesses so like they ask for your menu and they say you can only make stuff that was on your menu but i didn't have a menu but i was a graphic designer so i just kind of made a menu and put a couple pizzas on there including the one that i was making for that you know for that year i was very ignorant to the ways of of the pizza industry and I think what I was really doing was just trying to hop in wherever I could. I would go to the pizza conferences to try to, you know, sort out what distributions are and how things work and who you work with and how a business, you know, in the restaurant industry stays afloat. And it didn't make any sense. I'll be perfectly honest. I had no idea what I was doing. But it was also a way for me to kind of just get to the other side of a wall of, of professionalism. And that's to compete. So I would just show up and compete. I think I did that two or three years. And, you know, I'm taking a wood-fired oven pizza and I'm trying to cook it in a 400 or 500 degree oven. And even when I'm like, hey, let's get the oven as hot as we can, it was still in like 500 or 550. And so I was changing my recipe in order to accommodate this competition. And it always went very poorly. And truth be told, it, you know, like there were times where if I would have made it to the second round, I didn't bring enough toppings to like make a pizza again. So, I mean, I would have failed on so many levels. It just happened I failed early instead of later. But. I did it about two or three times and it always felt really good to kind of have the camaraderie of the human element of pizza, but it also felt really bad because I always scored terribly every single time. If you're exploring the restaurant industry as a place to enter into, 
there's a form of validation that has to come from, you know, public reception. And <laughs> that was my first kind of like, you know, blow to my you know, pizza ego was how shitty I did, how wonderful I thought I was, you know, at the same time. So was the competition like bracket style? So they did like rounds. So, you know, maybe there's 20 people in the first round and then there'd be 10 people in the second and they had to cook a different pizza than they cooked in the first round kind of thing. I think it was the same pizza. So you make a pizza once and they, the judges who these judges are just people that they find whomever it could be like, oh, yeah, it's my sister's boyfriend. Come on over. We need somebody to judge pizza. You know, there was no criteria for the judges. At least that's that's one of the ways that I kind of soothed my, my bruised ego when I didn't win. You make a pizza. Everybody gets scored. And then I think they take the highest something or other and they go to the final round. I actually don't even remember. I know that they call numbers and they ask you to make the pizza again, but I don't think I ever got to the second round, so it didn't matter anyways. It might have had a third. I think there was only two. And then they give you a place after that. What was the biggest difference in terms of cooking in like a competition like that versus a restaurant? Because like I know for barbecue, it's a drastically big difference between cooking barbecue, whether it's brisket, chicken or whatever for your restaurant, and then going to a competition like the big famous ones out in Kansas City that they have at the football stadium played it all in this like styrofoam box really nicely and it's just kind of random like you don't really know the criteria but the judges are looking for stuff that's completely different than what somebody traditionally would enjoy at the restaurant was that kind of the same thing that you encountered no i uh, i didn't have a business or a restaurant at this time i wasn't even selling pizza professionally at this time so like i didn't even have a catering company the first I think the only times I competed, I had the wood fired oven, but I had yet to charge people money for it. So I was just some uh, person that was making pizza in my garage. So I mean, what you're asking is, is it better than the garage or how does it change from the garage? Well, the garage was a weird place to make pizza. So I think any place that was warm and stable, <laughs> it was better than what I had been doing. So, I mean, I think the question's kind of funny for me because where I was was not a restaurant at the time. I was skanking things together. And this was a little less than skanking. So it was a step up from, you know, the shitty place that I was in. So 2016, you open your brick and mortar location. How much of the construction did you do yourself at the restaurant? Yeah, I think any of the construction that we did ourselves is just finishing work. And uh, we have an employee who actually works with us right now, Craig Bortmiss. If there was anything that we did ourselves, it was him. He is a brilliant, I don't even know how to describe his artwork other than to say that he's just He's the person that taught me how to look at a, something as a resource. Uh, and I think our culture is trained to look at it as in the way or trash or something like that. He uh, finished our bar and all of our tabletops with old lath wood. He goes into houses that are being torn down and collects a lot of like the plaster lath and cleans it up, squares it up. And all of our tables and bar tops were done by him. He's a, a brilliant artist, photographer. And, you know, what he's doing at Gourmet Pizzas is brilliant also. But I think in, in terms of that, and then we just painted, but um, it's, you know, uh, there's a, a lot of regulation around commercial build-outs, licensed contractors. You know, I have friends that could do things, but in the end, it was mostly done by a licensed commercial contractor, just us finishing things. How long did it take from, like, start to finish? 18 miserable months. Because like originally the building was like an old TV repair shop, right? That was like boarded up. That is correct. A hideous TV repair shop. And, you know, the person that owns the place, uh, Kevin Nosner is his name. I have known Kevin since I moved to Columbus 
we had lost touch with each other uh, through a mutual friend and I hadn't seen him in years. And I saw there was a post on Craigslist uh, as I was looking for a way to get out of corporate America. We had taken a couple steps, a friend and I, who became my business partner. He was looking to buy a place in Columbus and I would rent from him. And then we found the challenges of getting money for a restaurant were a little bit greater than we'd anticipated. So um, we ended up going in as business partners and finding a place to rent. A place that we found eventually uh, in Italian Village was on Craigslist. And it had been on the uh, posted 12 hours before I found it. We had just had a deal fall through where we were working with someone to buy a property for about three months. And it just all of a sudden one day, it was like, nope, not doing it. See you later. And the next morning as I was crying in the coffee, I had a, uh, Craig, I had a mild Craigslist obsession at that time when I was working in corporate America. And uh, I found this place with a little mock-up and, you know, it was an Italian place, an Italian village. And they were like, looking for an Italian eatery, an Italian village. And the rent seemed reasonable. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just call him, you know. And it, Or I sent a message and it turned out to be this guy that I've known for years. You know, it's one of those random Craigslist emails where it just gives you a random user, blah, 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 sending to user, blah, blah, blah. He knew from my, I always signed my emails, Nick G, and he knew from the context of my email that it was me. And he was like, give me a call. What the fuck? <laughs> And I truth be told, I don't think I would have ever been able to. We signed the lease without funding. And I told him I didn't know how I was going to get funded, but I promised I would. And he took me at my word. We opened the whole place on credit cards. It was nonsense. It was nonsense. But here we are, over five years later, still making pizza. How much has the neighborhood kind of changed since you first moved in there? It still has uh, whispers of, of similarity, but as far as, you know, the amount of people that are there and the, uh, just the neighborhood's kind of bulkiness, it has certainly filled itself in dramatically in the last five years. We got in at a time where I think the neighborhood would no longer facilitate somebody like me uh, trying to open a business there. I think there's a, a certain kind of bankroll that uh, Italian Village is requiring now that I would never have been a part of if, if we had waited until now. So. It's changed a lot, but also there's it feels very similar. With there being more farms nearby, like outside the city, than I think people might actually realize, how did you come to partner with the people that you do to kind of be your suppliers for ingredients? The first place that I ever sold pizza, not from the perspective of you hiring me to make pizzas for your party, was through the Clintonville Farmer's Market. And we did that, I think, for about three years. So really, like from a from a standpoint of forming and growing as a business, I think I grew up with those farmers. We were in the same place, you know, uh, Bluebird Meadow Farms forgot their little hot plate and they came into our oven and made their sausage samples for the day. And, you know, we kind of just supported each other. Hey, I need change or whatever. It was just this kind of camaraderie. We weren't part of the farmer's market specifically. We paid money to be in the global galleries, whatever parking area. But it was much as much of a farm community vibe as it could be. And, you know, we just made some really awesome friends. And I had, if I'm going to sell food to people, I took a very personal diligence in finding food that I felt good selling. And it's, re- it's a slippery slope in the restaurant industry. You know, you're like, well, hey, I could just as easily buy this thing and save some money and time and blah, blah, blah. But working with farmers has always been the reason why I felt comfortable opening a business, knowing that my, you know, I, I always think of money as little watering cans and whatever you want to grow, you give your money to. And the only way I could feel good about owning a business was to feel good about what was in my wake, what, what, what I was doing. You know, you, a bunch of money comes in, a bunch of money goes out. If that flow didn't 
suggest what I want out of this community and this culture and this world, then I, I just wasn't interested. So did you wind up taking the wood-fired pizza oven and putting it inside, or you got a brand new oven for that? We did. The wood-fired oven that we, and I still have it, it's been in my garage for a long time. I think the last event we did was two days before we opened up Boymade Pizza was our last uh, mobile event. You wound up choosing an oven. I think it's a Mario Acunto Classico 5. I don't know anything about pizza ovens, but what makes that kind of so special? Like how many pizza ovens are there out there? There's certainly more than a few. So the reason I think specifically I chose that, I was a lot of the kind of growth that I did as a pizza person that wasn't, you know, hands-on growth of just trial and error was through a, a website called pizzamaking.com. And there are some brilliant pizza people. I think some of the best pizza people in the world are exploring pizza there, you know, ridiculously detailed individuals, more so than I could ever be. But there was a guy that had the exact oven that I have, uh, Craig, TX Craig is what Texas, TX Craig is what he called himself. And when I was researching, and I certainly did my own research and what I was willing to do, who I was willing to trust and that kind of thing, the Mario Acunto, so there's an Acunto family, fifth generation oven makers. And at some point in the recent past, they split into two different companies. So it's uh, Mario Acunto and Gianni Acunto. I, I was fairly certain that I wanted to go with an Acunto. The you know Italian wood-fired ovens are designed specifically for very high heat. They're very efficient bake chambers. I could go into details about you know the design that I was interested in, but I think what was really you know interesting about it to me was that they've been doing this for five generations, and they're in the place where the style of pizza that I was uh, you know entering into came from. So it felt right. And again, I was never trying to be a Neapolitan pizza restaurant. The only thing that I was super interested in was the craft of a hyper articulate, high heat, wood fired pizza. It just seemed so enticing to me. And I think, you know, corporate America will never be able to just throw a bunch of money at the project and be better than I am because it's a nuance. It doesn't fit into that world of set it and forget it. It's very articulate and we're in that crevice where the, you know, dinosaur can't eat you or whatever. There's just like this Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, tra- chasing you down and we're in this crack that they just can't get to. And that's part of the reason why I liked it so much or it was so enticing, but really the craft. And so I knew that with that craft, I wanted to buy an oven from somebody that was proven to be a reliable oven. And there are a couple that come from Italy. We have the Acunto, the Mario Acunto. I think Poly G's has a Stefano Ferraro. Those are pretty much the two top dogs from a, an Italian oven standpoint. There's also Mara Forni. There's probably like maybe, you know, a handful, five or 10 uh, that stick out in the commercial realm and only a couple that come from Italy that I was aware of. And so when I found somebody online that owned one, I asked them all of them. He had had it for years. It was in his garage. He had the exact same oven I have in his garage ridiculous but i talked to him he had no complaints about it he was a very detail-oriented individual more so than i could ever be and then i found somebody that was selling them and we went on a a, pilgrimage to centennial colorado checked out the oven talked to the lady that was selling it and uh, made our decision then so did they just ship it and then you have to find somebody to help install it do they coordinate with like an installer and, and like give you the schematics of like hey you're gonna have to have all this kind of set up so when we show up with it we can attach everything? Like, how does that all kind of come together? 
so part of the reason why I bought it was because it was a UL certified for a zero inch clearance. So it didn't have a lot of, you know, combustibility regulations around it. They would take orders. We ordered it in March of 2015 and got it in October of 2015. So it took a significant amount of time. She got it, a shipping container of them sent and then sent them out whenever people were ready. She had had it for a month or two and we would just weren't ready to receive it. But um, they got it overnight shipped from, uh, so it came from Italy to Houston to Centennial, Colorado. And then we had to find somebody to pay to bring it from Centennial to here. And then we had to coordinate and in our building uh, or our contractor that was doing the build out managed. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how, you know, I trusted this guy. He doesn't know anything about any of these things, but he did a great job. He, there was a team of two of them. We had to run up one of those telescopic forklifts. We took the front of the building off. There's a little animated GIF of us uh, on my blog about us like building it back up. But we took the front of the building off. It came in one piece. It had these like uh, four holes. You pull pins, the legs drop down, you put the pins back in and it just stands. We had to get, you know, obviously understand the the nuances of, you know, duct work and all that. But that was all part of the uh, the process of getting the architectural designs and all that. So, I mean, everything was already worked out from that standpoint. We just had to take the product, get it where it needed to be, and then have the ability to pipe it. And it only could go in one place because there's an apartment above Gourmet Pizza, and we had to run this huge triple-walled stainless steel thing 25 feet up. So we had to take like half of the closet space of the apartment above us. And that was literally the only, I didn't want the oven where it was. I wanted it in the corner so everybody could see the fire and they could all look in. It just so happens that that wasn't in the cards. So we had to move it. Yeah. I mean, it was a nightmare the night before I, I got no sleep. You know what I mean? I just had images of it like rolling down the road. I'm like, oh, yeah. But it's truly, uh, you know, that was probably the most heart-wrenching moment was knowing this is the engine of gourmet pizza. And it took us seven months to get <laughs> Hopefully this goes all right. How did you come to select, you know, the beers and beverages that you have in the restaurant there? Is it stuff you like to drink yourself? Is it because it's local? Is it something a distributor recommended? How did you come to choose those items? We are very minimal when it comes to getting our things from a distribution. We have, I think, two organizations that we work with that are actually distribution oriented, and then everything else is very individual. We have one person that brings us all of our bags and cans and boxes and whatever. We have somebody that does that, and we work with Cavalier Distributing because we wanted Jackie O's, and Jackie O's is um, distributed through them. But other than that, every beer that we get comes from the people that make them. From a standpoint of how we pick them, I'm certainly interested in, you know, serving up things that I know and love. If somebody wants a, you know, a sour and I'm not a sour drinker, that's a little bit more challenging to kind of articulate ourselves through. I don't want to serve anything that I don't enjoy, but also I want to meet the needs of our guests. So I think, you know, if there is something that I don't enjoy as much as the others in the beer or the wine or whatever category it's. I'll usually just kind of like talk to the people that are asking about it. You know, hey, what do you want? What do you like? What is, you know, or just look around like who's doing a sour that, you know, that makes sense to buy locally. Because one of the questions that I get asked a lot is, you know, how do you stay so creative with pizza? And I think with the style that we uh, articulate when it's seasonal and local, you don't have to make a ton of decisions. You just have to respond. You know, if I'm looking at the farmer's list of things that they have, I'm just responding to those and then being 
a composer of somebody else's, you know, passions. And it's the same thing with, with beer. We're going to sell what's around. And I, another question that gets asked a lot is, you know, well, why would you choose something local over something that's national that's better? And I think a lot of times my response to that is, well, do I really need it in the first place? You know, do I really need that thing that's better produced in, you know, another state or another country? Can I get away with not using it and just focusing on what we're And again, that's that whole game of resources. You know, if I could not uh, put my talent of putting resources uh, to good use and I just wasn't interested in owning a business at all. How did the annual Christmas party in September come to be? This is probably one of the things that begs the most questions is Christmas on Wednesday is our every year uh, on our anniversary, which we just celebrate as the last Wednesday in September. So it's not the right date. I, I, I get confused on the date after a while anyway. But the last Wednesday in every September, we throw a Christmas party called Christmas on Wednesday and we decorate for Christmas. We make an eggnog. And, you know, we, it's changed since COVID, but historically we would just get all the free ingredients that we could possibly get. We would provide dough sauce and cheese. And it was just like pizza Sunday. We would just kind of produce the base and we would make food with whatever we could come up with otherwise. We would ask people for toppings and then we would give away pizza for free and then ask people to donate money. And then we would find a local nonprofit. Usually it's a local, local nonprofit farm, but this year we did mutual aid. We did a mutual aid support. I think COVID has, again, you know, changed our world and it's changing my mind about things too. But it started, you know, when I was in my 20s and you don't have a lot of resources and you're hungry. And I'm a big fan of resource, you know, of appropriate resource use. So I was always, my grandma taught me how to be super frugal. You know, she grew up in the you know, 20s or 30s, so she knew what was going on. You know, we would always buy a post Easter ham and throw it in the freezer and buy it for like five or 10 bucks, whatever, you know, managers, the manager provide. Sometime in June or July, there was, I didn't have any money. I didn't have any food, whatever the case was, low on resources. Uh, we would throw this stone soup kind of party called Christmas on Wednesday, where I would bake this ham and have people come over and bring things, right? We would just invite a bunch of people. I had the ham and I would just say, bring a you know Christmas side dish and we would do Christmas dinner and we would be eating like kings when, you know, just two days ago, I had no food at all. So it was just kind of a way to communalize those moments of lack. And really kind of, we all get together and celebrate uh, food together and, you know, togetherness. And then all of a sudden, there's no lack at all. It was just like kind of this magic trick of abundance out of the flat. And then on our first anniversary, it was on a Wednesday. And I wanted to do something big. I wanted to do something that got it. We weren't very popular at first. We, I, we didn't, we hadn't figured ourselves out completely. I knew how to make pizza, but when we moved to the, the restaurant, it became, I had to relearn everything. We were still figuring ourselves out. I didn't, we don't pay for advertising. So there was never this thing that was generating attention for us. And I really wanted to do something that kind of got people's attention. And I was like, how do you get people to come out on a Wednesday for a, you know, a party? And uh, it just dawned on me Christmas on Wednesday. I was like, well, we got to do Christmas on Wednesday, <laughs> which was the stupidest kind of like, it was very funny to me to throw a Christmas on Wednesday event because it doesn't make any sense. It's in the middle of September. Everybody calls it something else. It's always like Christmas in July or, you know, uh, Christmas in September or whatever. It's called Christmas on Wednesday. The reason why it's called Christmas on Wednesday is because it could be any fucking Wednesday. It's, it's mocking the arbitrary nature of the celebration. Uh, it just so happened to be that we picked Wednesdays and our first anniversary was on a Wednesday. So, you know, it was like, okay, Christmas on Wednesday. And I was like, well, why don't we just throw a Christmas party? That would be so hilarious. You know, then we can call it like the best Christmas party in September in Ohio or whatever, because nobody, 
there's Christmas in July, there's Christmas on Christmas, but there's no Christmas any other time, right? So we had this, like, we cornered the market on this Christmas in September. It was before, you know, Target or anybody would even dare thinking about Christmas. So it was almost funny, right? It's funny. And I really didn't like Christmas. I've always been one of those people that hated obligatory gift giving. So there was just so many funny things about it. But we decided to throw a Christmas party. And then with the idea of Christmas, it became, you know, how do we give? How do we, what can we do? So we decided to ask our farm friends if they could give us toppings and we could just collect money for a local nonprofit farm. And it was just such a wonderful experience. We had such a wonderful time that it was like, well, we're doing this all the time. So we make every year, we make an H-nog throw a Christmas party. Since COVID, we've been charging people regular price and donating half of the profits. Before COVID, we would just make pizza. And I mean, sometimes it was pink celery and lamb chorizo and beets. And you just grab whatever was on the board and moved along. You know, there was no, there was no uh, ordering. And we just said, give us some money. And donated all our money to whoever we were raising money for. How do you come up with the chef's choice? I mean, does it change weekly? Is it based off just ingredients that you have around? Just whatever you feel like? Everything is based on the ingredients we have around. So let's be clear, your gourmet pizza is based on the ingredients that we have around. Again, that's that game of resources. Very important. The chef's choice, I mean, it's just us. You don't last long at gourmet pizza as an employee if you don't give a shit about pizza in a very real way. And the team that we have right now, really, if they don't care about, you know, there are a couple of people that don't make pizza as much, but they still care about the process inordinately. The people that are making pizza, especially the night shift pizza makers, are some of the best pizza makers that I've ever known. Super talented and give them the room to do whatever they want. In gourmet pizza, there are technically, we say that a chef's choice is a 12-inch pizza that has cheese on it. That's basically what we guarantee. But other than that, there are no real rules. And there's, as a matter of fact, just last week, there was a guy, Dave comes in every Friday night and gets a chef's choice. And it's, you know, different every goddamn time. You know, chef's choice is one of those things where you can say, hey, I really hate olives. Or could you please put some pepperoni on there, vegetarian, vegan, that kind of stuff. So like, you can give us guidelines. We really want to meet your needs. The more limitations you give us, the less it's our creation, the more it's yours. But we want to make sure that you get what you want out of it. And, you know, with no restrictions, we do whatever the fuck we want. But our friend uh, Dave has been ordering a chef's choice in a couple salads every week forever. And I, I realized he never eats our cheese pizza. And I felt kind of weird. Like, I want him to try like a plain ass pizza. So we made him a cheese pizza and a pepperoni pizza. <laughs> so just one week out of the, you know, out of his career with gourmet pizza, he could know what the simpler side of gourmet pizza was. So again, and there was one time where uh, one of our farm friends got like an inordinate amount of apples given to them and they gave us a bunch. And I remember giving somebody uh, their chef's choice was followed with a bag of apples. Here's your chef's choice, you know, fresh mozzarella, butternut squash sauce, pepperoni bacon, butter, and a bag of apples. <laughs> There's a level of playfulness that we have to kind of like embrace in order to enjoy what we're doing. And I think the chef's choices are really wonderful way to keep ourselves you know entertained and creative if you order like we say you know chef's choice is different every time so if you order three chef's choices you get three different pizzas what's really hard is when somebody orders like a table gets like five chef's choices and they're all vegan and they don't eat onions and it's like okay so no meat no cheese no onions and you want us to make five different creative pizzas <laughs> it's like you know sex is great but if you have to have sex like 30 times in a row it's like you know that's it starts to turn into something a little bit different feeling after a while 
So, you know, when we first started doing Chef's Choices, every time someone ordered one, we'd ring a bell. It started to get really chaotic, you know, when everybody started ordering Chef's Choices on a Friday night. You can't even keep up. Wait, did we ring the bell seven times or six times? We had to change that after a while. Now, I heard that you kind of ferment your dough for like three days. Is that accurate? A minimum of three days. The accuracy, I think, that's when we start using it. Uh, it has a life cycle of between three and six days, and we don't start using it until at least day three. And obviously, you know, every once in a while, you get that moment where you're out of dough and you need to change things. We have certainly, and you know, as temperature changes, fermentation times change, I think we've got it pretty lucky. And we have a wonderful kitchen manager, and the amount of math that she does for being a non-math person is just <laughs> remarkable. We were uh, lacking enough space for our dough, and sometimes we would have to play the... So let's talk about fermentation for a minute. Think of uh, fermentation as like a... It's like the triangle of, of information. And if anyone is familiar with photography, you've got film speed, you've got shutter speed, and you've got aperture. And those three things together make a balanced photo. If one changes, the other two have to change to meet the needs of that, of, of that exposure. So the amount of light that's let in, the amount of time that light comes in, and the way that it's being recorded on the film speed. It's similar with uh, fermentation. You have the amount of time, uh, like the exposure, the amount of time, uh, the temperature which with which you're fermenting, and then the, le the amount of leaven or the amount of yeast that you're putting into it. So as things change with one of those numbers, the other two have to change to meet it. And just like in photography, if you're in an extremely low light, light scenario, you get a really grainy photograph. And sometimes that's awesome and sometimes it's not. But if low light is what you're working with, then everything else has to adjust to it. So it's similar with, I think, a lot of dough recipes for beginners or people that get a recipe on the internet require an inordinate amount of yeast. Uh, and we use a very, very, we don't even go through a pound of yeast a year. We have a, a, a date that we buy our new pound of yeast, even we throw out the old stuff every year. We just uh, <laughs> bought yeast again. One pound of yeast per year for the amount of pizzas that we make. So what we've done is just like if you're taking a photograph and you want a crystal clean photo, the thing that you're going to want to focus on the most is the light. You have enough light to make it, you know, whatever you need it to be or maybe shutter speed. So we've picked what we wanted and adjusted everything around that. We wanted a slow, developed flavor. So we adjusted our yeast because time was what we were interested in. We adjusted our yeast way down and uh, we balanced it with our temperature. It's not ideal from a spatial perspective to have to keep dough for three days, but we found over time that three days was what got us what we were looking for from a uh, caramelization or the leopard spotting on the side from a flavor standpoint and from a textural standpoint. So, you know, in the end, the idea is to find out what it is that you're looking for, or if it's not what you're looking for, what you're forced upon. Like when we were a catering company, we could not adjust the temperature. So what we did was we fermented in the most stable place that I could find, which was my basement. It was around 60 degrees. So the calculation when we were a catering company was, okay, it's 60 degrees. I have the ability to make dough you know, after work on Friday for the Saturday event, that gives us 18 hours. So now that I know it's 60 degrees, it has to be ready in 18 hours, I would adjust my yeast to that. And I think the thing that made me such a powerful pizza maker was the fact that I was constantly adjusting our dough recipe to meet the needs of the time that I could make the dough, the temperature with which I could ferment, and then trying to, you know, balance that third yeast to fit those needs. 
once you start seeing that triangle rather than a recipe, the whole world opens up, right? And that's when it, earlier I was talking about how I like to learn on my own because it gives you, it's your magic rather than somebody else's magic. If I'm following a recipe and, and something needs to change, I don't understand that magic. I'm just replicating it. So, you know, training for me was rigorous and we failed a lot. We would, I remember we showed up at somebody's house. They hired us to feed 25 or 30 people. And I looked at the dough when we got there and it was just puddles of like, you could see the lines of where dough balls were, but it was just puddles of dough on the, on the, in the corner. And we had like 20 minutes to figure out how to make pizza for those people. But these are those things that are your pizza stripes, as we call them in in gourmet pizza, failing so miserably that it'll never be that bad again. (laughs) And then, you know, understanding uh, slowly but surely the nuances of succeeding with dough, no matter the situation. And that's been our one of our strong suits this whole time, just being able to get it done no matter what. Catering taught us that more than anything. How difficult was it to learn how to make ice cream? Still don't think I'm great at it. I bought the ice cream maker because I thought it was a wonderful addition to our creative process and another way to use ingredients that I didn't know how to use with pizza. Uh, I think what I've landed on is sorbet more than anything, but there's still a lot of nuances of ice cream that I just don't have the time to unravel. I'm trying to stay away from custard ice creams because I think those are the most challenging for me specifically. But in the end, we started having intermittent batch failures that I didn't have the time to troubleshoot or the energy or the excitement to troubleshoot. I think the reason my pizza was the thing that I troubleshot was because I really cared about it. And I don't care about ice cream in the same way. But I do enjoy, you know, using those ingredients that our farms have that we weren't able to support and use before. So I think what we're doing is we're now buying a vanilla ice cream and uh, kind of making sorbets uh, whenever fruit season is in, in place. But we're pretty shifty with what we offer. It's not a lot of, I don't like that expectation of always trying to get the same thing. We have a couple, you know, three pizzas that are on the menu all the time. And we have a couple things that we have all the time, but I like the ability to be as minimalistic as possible and just kind of play with other things. And ice cream was a play that um, I still have a lot of work before I feel like I can make a good ice cream. It's hard. So the answer, very. So some places list you guys as a Neapolitan style pizza place. But as you mentioned, you know, that's not what you set out to do. That's not what you want to be known for. What style would you call yourselves if you would even associate yourself with a style? I have trouble categorizing things. My brain doesn't work that way very well. So I don't usually do that. But I mean, I don't think it's incorrect to call us a Neapolitan-style pizza restaurant. And the reason is uh, styles are defined by the heat that they're cooked with, which would kind of, you know, not only the temperature, but the style of oven and the time, you know, temperature and time uh, define styles. And if you break down loosely what different styles are accommodated, it's usually like eight to 12 minutes for Americans, six to four, whatever, you know, there's the New York and all those things. There are nuances to those styles besides that. But from a general standpoint, I think the style is loosely based on how you cook it. We have a Neapolitan uh, mixer, uh, an Italian uh, spiral mixer. We have Italian oven tools. We have an Italian oven. It all came from Italy. So in that regard, we are in a, a Neapolitan style pizza restaurant. You look at the pictures, you see it, you understand it. Um, again, the reason why I was interested in it was because of the craft of it and my ability to discover myself within this style. And if you were to take what we do, especially like a chef's choice or a heavily loaded pizza, chef's choices are usually pretty heavy on our, in our world. Italy, Naples does not do what we do with 
that cook style. So the reason why I called it gourmet pizza is to shield myself from people telling me that it's not a Neapolitan style pizza. The reason why I hesitate to define the style in general is to have the autonomy to do whatever the hell I want. A lot of people that work with Neapolitan style pizza, I think part of the reason why it is so minimalistic is because it's very challenging to balance the heat, the different ways that heat affects the pizza and uh, have a heavily topped pizza without it being soggy or you know flimsy or otherwise compromised in some way. But there are some very nuanced ways that we've learned to explore or to accommodate pizza so that we can take it outside of those norms and still produce a solid pizza. Like one of them, the dippy egg, uh, we serve a, a, a runny egg uh, in the center as, as a topping. And um, the nuance of cooking an egg at the same time as cooking the pizza and getting them both to come out right is very challenging. A lot of people will just fry an egg and put it on top. And I can see why, because it's a hyper nuanced thing. And the same thing is if you put a lot of toppings on a pizza that cooks in 90 seconds, you know, there's a danger of the cheese not being melted or the uh, dough not being cooked appropriately. So I guess, you know, in the end, the thing that takes us apart is what we do with a Neapolitan style pizza. We are not, you know, we don't use San Marzano tomatoes. We don't use Buffalo mozzarella. I'm one of those people that goes away from tradition often. So the thing that that I always hesitate to define is us because then someone can tell me how I'm not doing it right. And I've never wanted that. I've wanted the freedom to discover myself through pizza and, uh, you know, labeling as a form of negation of who I am. If you're talking about styles of pizza, we are a Neapolitan style pizza. If you are using that definition to tell me how I'm not doing it right, then you can, you know, go fuck off. Columbus has a lot of pizza places, independent, regional, some chains too as well. Is the pizza community here supportive and uplifting of each other or is it super competitive or is it just non-existent and everybody kind of stays in their own corner? The pizza community is, is something that I don't hop into. I don't hop into a lot of communities other than the one that we kind of found ourselves in, and that's just Italian village in general. I am someone who, I'm not part of any associations. I'm not a big, I don't go. I think gourmet pizza has always been, you know, we don't pay for advertising. We don't, we're not trying to take over the world. I don't care about money in the sense of, you know, making it just as long as we're thriving in our internal world. I don't have a lot of care but i think what we've always done and for better or for worse i'm not saying that this is you know a good idea this is just who i am and how i found myself but we don't i just put my head down and make pizza you know what i mean it's a daunting task to be somebody that runs a business and owner operator right there's just so much i have two kids you know uh, i divorced so i have them part of the time and they're my responsibility there's a lot that's going on that i'm interested in giving full attention to it's hard for me to look outside of my own little, you know, blinders of pizza and staffing issues and, you know, supply issues. And there's nothing in in me that's resistant to the pizza community. There's nothing in me. And actually, at one point in time before COVID, there have been a couple of times where we tried to pull together. Uh, it was uh, myself, uh, TJ from Poly G's, Ryan LaRose from Leone's Pizza. Colin, who owns East Coast Pizzeria. I've never had this pizza. I'm sorry, Colin. And uh, there's a guy who did a wood fire named Farm Fire Pizza. We were all getting together and just because, just to start talking and sharing and exploring. And that was right before COVID hit and we stopped that. But 
there have been a couple of different, you know, embracings of the community that, uh, that uh, we've had just from a sense of like finding each other, you know, naturally in the world. Same thing with Joe from Commune. We just found each other naturally in the world. And there's a lot of, you know, there was a lot of openness and respect. And, but I, as far as, you know, the pizza community at large, I don't think I really understand it because I'm just, you know, putting my head down. I'm not a networker. I don't, I've never been that kind of person smoother. So I can't really say too much other than what I've naturally stumbled upon. What'd you do during COVID? That's a loaded question. Can you be a little more specific? Yeah, at the, at the beginning of COVID, you know, when everything shuts down, did you guys close it all? I mean, pizza is a natural grab and go take out food. Like it's probably the best example of to go food that you could have. So I'm assuming you guys saw a giant spike in business, but didn't know if that was the case or kind of how you guys navigated all that. Pre-COVID, gourmet pizza was 85% dine-in, and we had a lot of cocktails and servers and patio and all that stuff. We designed our business around inviting people into our world, coddling them, giving a nice little hug, and the way we built our kitchen, you know, the open kitchen style, so we could all be in one room. And uh, everything that we did up until COVID was to encourage that. Um, and when COVID hit, you know, the tables got pushed out, the boxes started packing and stacking up. And I, I think COVID is showing us a new, a new kind of tone for business ownership, but I am not somebody who feels comfortable just stopping. I mean, one, we never have the money to just stop. Restaurants in general are built around that repetition very tightly. I think if we stopped, it would be hard to start again. I was never interested in stopping. And, you know, when we made gourmet pizza, part of the story that I was telling myself, and, you know, this is a double-edged sword, but I wanted it to be lean. I wanted to make something that they could run, maybe even by myself if I had to, because I just didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was getting into. And I wanted to ensure that I could just work my ass off and it could go forward. And um, it's, you know, it's a two-person job minimum, I think, most times. But that was the benefit that we had when COVID hit was it was super lean. We were down to, we were running a wood-fired pizza restaurant six days a week with like six people on staff. It was challenging. And, you know, I think we had a good team. Everybody kind of just went and stayed in place for a while. So, I mean, no one was requesting off, you know, nobody had any vacations planned for that. It was, it was brilliant. There's just so many uh, chaotic rules and, uh, mandates and you know no one's communicating with a business owner they're just expecting you to find out what the rules are and, and, and follow them and i think that was probably the most challenging thing and you know like telling people what to do like hey you got to do this hey you got to do that you can't come in here unless you do that that was a very i took that very seriously at first and, and you know that story is is changing as time goes on but just very confusing so unsure how to do the right thing, you know, like we're in an open kitchen, but if you're working in an oven, you don't have to wear a mask because it's too hot and people didn't want to see somebody without a mask. Endless confusion, endless readjustment. We had to change our phones because we were not used to taking phone orders the way that they came in. So it certainly shook our world, but we remained open. I don't think the only times we've closed, we've had a couple times where maybe like a day or a night I think in general, I think we've only ever closed due to like staffing issues or something. Oh, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, we got out of the way of that. We closed for a day or two then. But probably since COVID began, we probably lost like three or four days. 
Since you've been involved, how has the food and, and restaurant industry in Columbus changed? What do you think still needs to change, if anything, and where do you think it's headed? I don't know that I'm capable of answering that. Again, you know, I'm the person that puts his head down and just does what he does. I was not a restaurant kid. I didn't, I didn't grow up in the restaurant industry. I mean, pizza is certainly the food industry, but it's not the restaurant industry. And, you know, when you look at pizza and you look at restaurants, pizza is a form of restaurant, but it's a completely different animal than any other place. Like there's no other place where you can just serve one thing, you know, like we have pizza, we have salad to go with that pizza. Maybe we've got ice cream, but that's us. Pizza is, I think, that kind of anomaly of the restaurant industry where you can be so single-minded. And in that, it creates a different access to, you know, what's possible in, in the culture and the community. So I, I feel um, slightly disconnected from the restaurant industry in general, the redheaded stepchild, if you will. So I don't think I'm, you know, capable of answering that. And again, I don't, you know, my inability to kind of categorize and process things in that way. I don't think it lends me as a, a, a responsible response to that. Do you ever try other people's pizza or are you still just really focused on like, this is what I'm doing, what they're doing doesn't really matter in the sense that I need to make sure like my shit's right. So we'll take that in two parts because I want to go back to the competition. You mentioned competition before and I have some thoughts on that that I'd like to share, but when we decided that we were going to open up a wood-fired pizza restaurant, we went out on a monthly journey. We would get a bunch of people together. We'd buy a bunch of pizzas, and we would have pizza at a different place uh, once a month on Wednesdays. And we think we did that for like three years. It was a wonderful opportunity to just get drunk and have fun. And, you know, I don't spend a lot of money at restaurants right now. I'm a big proponent of individual restaurants. We've lost a few wonderful restaurants since COVID began. I think the one I miss the most is Baba's. That was the only breakfast place that I would go to. Bob was on the corner of Hudson and Summit. When I get pizza, when I spend money on pizza, almost exclusively, it's the pizza place that's right by my house, right? So I got a 10-year-old and 8-year-old, and the uh, Leone's Pizza opened up. It's very close to where I live. I remember the first time we got Leone's, my kids were like, this is the best pizza I've ever had. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, the pizza that we get, uh, Pizza House, it's a Columbus-style pizza since 1962. I mean, you know, cut in squares, classic Columbus-style pizza. And I get it because it solves problems and it's a kind of pizza that I don't make at the same time. I am not a picky person. And I remember one time, you know, I was helping a, a college they were all these it was an advertising or marketing college class and uh, gourmet pizza was the subject and they all had their little marketing things and they were trying to sell me on their marketing and somebody put a really shitty piece of pizza in front of me i was like would you rather have this or gourmet pizza and i was like well i'd rather have the pizza that's in front of me and ate this really shitty cold pizza and they were like oh geez this didn't work out how i had planned i am a you know and i think you, you you'll probably find this more often than you think you know people from the restaurant industry they make these wonderful meals and then they go home and they eat like canned spaghetti and fucking like throw some, you know, it's just like sustenance versus creativity. And sometimes sustenance is the focus and sometimes, you know, uh, wonderful food is the focus. But I'll eat any pizza that's in front of me and the pizza that I buy is the pizza that solves the problems that I have at the moment. Oh, and I said I wanted to go back to competition. I have some really strong feelings that, you know, competition is the wrong word to use for the style of uh, business that I'm interested in. And somebody presented me a word to replace it. And I think it's community. And that, that's what you were asking about. You know, you use the word community when you brought up competition. I don't feel like I'm in competition with anybody. 
other than myself uh, yesterday. And it's important for me to, you know, remain focused on myself and what I'm doing and how well I'm doing it. And I don't really worry about trends. I don't try to meet the needs of the next blah, blah, blah. Anytime there's a new hip thing that people are into, I don't bring it on. Uh, we don't do a lot of partnering with the next hip thing. It's just never been what I was interested in. I always wanted to create something that spoke for itself. And uh, that's why we don't advertise. That's why. Well, also, you know, working for Kroger for a decade, I learned to really resent the advertising industry. So I had my qualms with it. But I think my general sense, and even if I'm not tied into it, is that we are a community of food makers or pizza makers or, you know, whatever. And I'm interested in looking at everyone that does what we do from a communal standpoint. You know, I'll go into a restaurant when it's closing and just like peek in the back and watch them cleaning and, you know, my little heart's warm when they're cleaning diligently. <laughs> I just feel like, you know, we're all doing the same thing. And I don't feel like uh, competition is the right way to think about it. Will the pizza blog ever make a comeback? That's something that you, there was a guy that came into the restaurant all the time. It was like, when are you going to make a post? When are you going to make a post? Uh, I think I keep it because uh, for, you know, posterity, for, you know, keeping that story uh, accessible to anybody that wants to see it. The reason I started a pizza blog is I knew that I wanted to make pizza my business. I knew that I wanted to do, when I, when I made that decision, I wanted to create a website that generated traffic before we had a, a restaurant. So uh, the best way that I could figure out how to do that was to have a pizza blog and just populate it. So at least, you know, my relatives and my friends could see what was going on. And that's what it was a lot at the very beginning, which is relatives and friends and people that had made it to Pizza Sunday. And, you know, the legend kind of built itself through those kind of mysterious, wonderful experiences. But, you know, the day we opened up our restaurant, I just moved the blog and put a homepage for gourmet pizza. And the goal was always just to generate traffic before we were a business. But probably not. I think social media has become the new blog, you know, it's just in snippets of 10 seconds or a minute or whatever. What's the idea behind the pizza journal? 2018, I had this idea. You know, we've always wanted to meet people's pizza needs, uh, pizza dreams. That's the phrase that we use. Your pizza dreams is what we're what, what our create your own pizza is called. And I uh, just, you know, thought it was funny. I had this dream journal. I found this dream journal. I was like, wouldn't it be funny if we had like a pizza dream journal? So I took this dream journal and turned it into a pizza dream journal. And then we ran this campaign. It was like your pizza dream. And I just wanted to know what people's pizza dreams were. Maybe, you know. If we're already doing what you're asking for, then why don't we just need it? Or if we're just like a hop, skip, and a jump away from a pizza dream that you have, why not? You know, I have access to pizza things. If we can make your dreams come true, let's do it. So in 2018, that was the initial goal. Uh, but it turned into something wholly different. I mean, if you just put a book that people can write right in front of them at the bar, you'd be surprised some of the things that came out. Some of them were hilarious. Some of them were, uh, you know, earth shattering. Some of them were funny and creative and people drawing things. And, People's interpretation of the phrase pizza dream, like what is your pizza dream? Everybody has a different way of negotiating what that means to them and what that answer is. And I just had such a good time like receiving those pizza dreams. And it's also a dialogue. Part of what Gourmet Pizza wants to engage with the humans that choose to engage with us. So part of what we want to do is create a dialogue and having a pizza dream journal allows us to kind of like hey, here's a, you know, this thing over here for Pizza Dream. Do you want to look at it? Do you want to write in it? You know, the other day, we just brought the Pizza Dream Journal back for uh, 2022. And so it's a brand new little thing. But, um, you know, there were people at the, at the bar who had wrote, I haven't read any of the Pizza Dream Journal yet. I try to wait a little bit before I start perusing. But somebody wrote, would you rather uh, have only pizza for the rest of your life or never have pizza for the rest of your life? You know, they were like 
showing it to people and creating conversation around it. And it was just bringing like the whole bar together in different ways. And they had asked me that question. And I think my answer is that I would rather never have pizza again than always have pizza because I lived in a world <laughs> where all I ate six days a week because I didn't have any money and I was at the restaurant all the time and all we made was pizza. I ate pizza for like two years, at least a meal or two a day. And after a while, you start getting the shakes and you can't really like, you know, function as a human the way that you want to. As odd as it sounds, I would rather never have it than always have How'd you come up with the let's talk about nights idea? How did I come up with that? Wow, we just do it anyways. I think that's just what the bar turned into a lot of the time. I always ask people really intimate questions. Um, I think part of what I, the tools that I use to engage with our customers or in life in general, is to be hyper present and kind of like very candid. I think candor is one of my superpowers. You know, somebody asks me how I am, I've always been that person. I just tell them exactly how I am, whether it's great or terrible or anything in between. I try not to be that person. It's like, oh, good. How about you? You know, I take uh, human interaction uh, as seriously as I know how based on, you know, my current mental position, but gourmet pizza has always been one of a dialogue and uh, candor and exploration. And I think it was just a natural thing to just start. We had a couple people, you know, and there's there's always a lady that comes, Ramona. She's the one that made the art car on the back patio. She's our conversation ringer. Uh, even if nobody else is there, it's always just me and Ramona. You know, we made a few friends along the way that like to show up. COVID changed that again dramatically and we're trying to rebuild that thing but we always got three or four people it's not like a bar full of people it's fun it's a reason to and we pick a word i pick a word sometimes ramona picks the word and it's just like a a way to explore like we can talk about anything it doesn't really matter you know but picking that word gives us a thing to come back to there's always a joke at the end you know oh the word we're talking about perfection so oh wasn't this perfect thing that we do but it's just a reason to collect you know, engage and try to open up a community of people to support each other intellectually. What's next for you professionally? I mean, do you ever foresee opening a second gourmet anywhere or is it just all about continuing to make great pizza and and doing it that way? Or is there anything on the horizon? I think if if I were to sum it up right now, it might be the second. Uh, I have no intention of doing anything other than exactly what I'm doing. I, very recently, I've been toying with the idea of just like, you know, somebody's complaining. One of the employees is complaining about something that I'm doing. Like, you want to buy the place? <laughs> you can do it. That's fine. And if they said, here's the money, I'd have probably taken it, you know. So uh, I have no idea uh, what the future holds. I'm not interested in another place. I don't think I have learned enough uh, about the processes and the systems and, uh, and training and how to look for good employees. I just don't think I can put it together again as successfully as right now and still hold together what's happening right now. And that's indicative of not having enough money or resources to hire somebody to manage the place. Uh, We got some really good help. We got a kitchen manager during the day. I pretty much fill the role of the nighttime manager and, you know, work shifts. I hold the place up in ways that would not allow me to pull myself away. And I don't know how I could sustain such an articulate situation and have it guided and led in the way that, you know, my voice desires and walk away at the same time. I imagine part of the process is trying to figure out how to, you know, replicate yourself as a business owner. This is, you know, this is my first time. I don't really know what I'm doing. Even after five years, I still, I don't think I know what I'm doing very well, which keeps me from making any plans outside of this. If at one point in time, I was like, oh shit, I figured it out. I got, I got it. You know, I did it. 
Mom, I figured it out. Who knows what would happen after that, but uh, I've never hit that point. So I got no plans other than putting my head down and making pizza and then maybe hiring somebody to do it for me so that I don't have, I can do it when I want to rather than when I have. This next question comes from previous guests on the podcast, Somali Mark Bright of Saison Winery out in California there. Uh, he left behind a question. Everyone, to a certain extent, believes their own hype, their own BS. How do you navigate that daily so it doesn't affect the overall outcome of the restaurant or what you're producing? Yeah, the question reminds me of before I was a parent, I was talking to someone who was a parent. I was like, yeah, how do you know, you know, if you're being too overbearing as a parent? Or how do you know if, you know, you're getting in the way of parenting? How do you know if you're spending too much time with your kid? And he was like, they'll let you know whether you like it or not. And I think, you know, at the beginning, it was really hard to, to separate my ego from the product, from the reviews, from the, uh, you know, reception, whatever. But I think what you find over time is you either, you know, uh, sink or swim. We first opened up, we had one price point for pizza, regardless of if you got a cheese pizza or a Porcostopolis pizza, it was all the same price. And I was adamant about that for a year. And then I, I realized it was a dumb thing. You know, it took me a long time to hear the needs of the community because, you know, if you don't have confidence and stability in your ideas and your product and your efforts, then you're never going to make it to the point of opening a restaurant in the first place. So there is something that is required to get you. You're never going to be president if you don't fucking do the things that presidents need to do. But once you get there, you know, I'm sure you, you, you change when you, when you hear all the, all the words, you know, a million times. Everybody's going to talk shit. Everybody's going to tell you how good or bad you are. But if everybody is saying that your cheese pizza sucks, it probably fucking sucks, you know? So time tells those truths, I think, more than anything. And, you know, what doesn't bend breaks. So it took us a year to change our model to something where it was a price for topping as opposed to the same price for all the pizzas. <laughs> and that was a really necessary change. That was part of what was so hard at the beginning. We had a couple things that were off that we really needed to adjust. And I just, held strong, you know, like, fuck everybody, I'm just going to keep doing it. And then eventually you realize that keeping doing it is not the answer. What question do you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything. Oh, let's see. Well, I think I'm a, I wish I would have had time to think about this one. I wish I would have known. I, totally. I am one of those people that would have come up with something very specific. I don't know. Let's come back to that one so that I can really think about it. This question's from one of our listeners that they wrote in. To what extent is your menu designed to either increase cash flow, offer a product that your competitors don't based around what you like to eat or to create buzz through word of mouth? Like basically asking how you designed your menu. Are you specifically trying to do one of those things, all of those things? So I'm a big proponent of everything that we do as a form of magic, right? We're constantly affecting the people around us with our words, with our clothes, with our decisions, our actions, all of those things. Anything that you present yourself as is a form of manipulation. So a menu is no different, right? When you create a menu, you are manipulating the thoughts of the human that's interacting with that in some way. And manipulation is not a negative word here. It's just a fact, right? You are, you are giving them an avenue to consider you and it's telling your story in a very brief way. The menu that we have is super simple. Again, pizza, salad, cheesy garlic bread, which is just pizza, maybe some dessert and some drinks. The two things that I think we focused on most heavily are 
tight, small. I want people to look at our menu and go, oh, great, I want that. There's only four things, I want that one of the four things. You know? And then if they want to get in detail, that's when we have the seasonal toppings menu. And you can get crazy at gourmet pizza, but when you initially see our menu, it's easy as can be. There's no confusion. Well, we sell something called a pizza boat, which we created. It's just a half of a dough ball shaped like a boat kind of thing. That's a little confusing. But the number one thing that I wanted was easy, streamlined, piece of cake, simplicity. The one thing that I did think was important was having something on the menu worth talking about. And that's what really drove the chef's choice to actually be on the menu. We came up with so many stupid, hilarious, whatever things that could have potentially, you know, stoned days of Pizza Sunday certainly brought a lot of ridiculous ideas as we were just trying to, you know, think about what, what it could be. Chef's Choice was one of those that was just funny. You know, it was never something that I was actually going to put on the menu or, you know, whatever we, we talked about. But Chef's Choice is on the menu to make our world more creative and to make our uh, seasonal toppings more uh, accessible to people that like call on the phone, can't really see this thing. We don't populate any lists online or anything of what we have today. It's always changing. And it's also something that I think is worth talking about. So I think part of what I learned along the way was to have a menu worth talking about and, you know, just for it to be accessible. So I think that's what we're doing with our menu, accessibility and simplicity and chef's choice talking. Last 10 questions are questions we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. So compare contrast across all the episodes. Who was the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Elena Shock. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? Bench scraper. What's that? Flat blade. Scraping. Flour. This is scraping. One thing in the restaurant that you would not fix yourself? Refrigeration. Restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own? Commune. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Is there any place that you haven't been to that you want to go to? Any place that you haven't eaten that you want to eat at? I need to go to Italy and I need to be able to speak the language. And then once I'm there, probably checking out the bucket list of where I need to eat. But I'm not somebody that the way I handle resources is the way that I handle my whole life. You know, what's in front of me? How can I celebrate it? And that's really how I live my life. I don't, there's no place that I want to go that I, that I haven't won't or haven't yet. I don't have a bucket list for a restaurant. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Well, crazy is a weird word. I don't know, man. I, like five different things come to mind. The guy with the blowtorch. My son got uh, like scratched by a dog while my, my ex-wife and the kids were leaving. And that was crazy in a whole different way where, you know, there's like stitches needed and I'm the only person making food. We had some really crazy talks uh, on Wednesdays. I think the blowtorch might probably fit. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, that's just crazy. It's, it's a weird word to kind of synopsize. It was just a guy that had a blowtorch, and I thought for certain he was, he was outside. I thought for certain that he was going to uh, burn the place down. He had just gotten it. It was like some gift from, I don't know. Yeah, he had a blowtorch, and it was weird. And I was like, hey, you're a great person and all, but that blowtorch is a little close. Maybe you want to take it somewhere else. <laughs> I think the funny thing, one thing about gourmet pizza that I've noticed over the years is we don't advertise, so we don't pay somebody to talk to us. So there's no avenue of communication that isn't word of mouth, right? People that experience it and like it talk about it, or, you know, they don't like it, they talk about it too. But what the subtlety of not advertising and not being on the main drag is that, and caring about our food is that I think we have a wonderful set of customer base. You know, nobody fucks with our bathroom. Nobody's really terrible. To our guests, we have a wonderful customer base. And every once in a while, somebody comes in that's an asshole. I suppose the most terrible customer story was a, a guy named Lance who, you know, 
he showed up and it was just like, this guy is terrible. <laughs> and, you know, he, he sat at the bar and I was the bartender that day. And there was a couple here and a couple there. And it became immediately aware that he was absolutely terrible. But he was one of those terribles that was just weak and scared, but he used it as a kind of bravado. And we all just sunk in and sunk into this human and listened and talked. And it was amazing. <laughs> he thought he was going to get banned. And I was like, you can come back, Lance. You just can't be an asshole, you know? <laughs> food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything that's super unhealthy, you know, fast food or candy or anything that like you're, you just can't help yourself? Well, I can help myself. I suppose when you edit that, not really, but. I think the funniest uh, pleasure of mine that, you know, this will probably fuck up my street cred a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, don't hate me or don't love me any less because of this. But I think the one thing that I will do when I'm overworked and far too drawn out and need to just like separate is Fortnite and pizza rolls is, is my game. I have a 10 year old and an eight year old and I like to connect with them and whatever they enjoy. And I like to pretend that I buy the the pizza rolls for them, <laughs> but they don't like pizza rolls. But the reason I play Fortnite is to connect with them in a real, you know, father, son, uh, whatever they're doing kind of way. But I will eat shitty pizza rolls and play Fortnite until four in the morning sometimes. And that's probably my guilty pleasure that I shouldn't tell the people when I have, you know, high-end pizza restaurant. <laughs> Best chef movie, Burnt? which is the one with Bradley Cooper, Chef, which is the food truck one with uh, John Favreau, Pig, Nicolas Cage, Julia and Julia, which is the one with uh, Meryl Streep, No Reservations has Catherine Zeta-Jones, Ratatouille is the animated one, The Ramen Girl uh, with Brittany Murphy, or East Side Sushi. Which one of those would you recommend to somebody who's never seen any of them? I think that depends on your age group. I really like Ratatouille because it helped my kids understand flavor in a way that was not obvious, you know? The visual aspect of flavor was a wonderful concept to introduce to my children. I certainly wouldn't uh, play them Pig, but if I were to pick one movie, you know, personally, I think it would probably be Pig. I think the, the articulation, uh, it, I like the way it told the story of the restaurant industry from outside of the restaurant industry, but like breaking through, you know, the surface at the same time. I thought that was a wonderful exploration. Probably Pig. So favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of point to this as almost like your aha moment. You knew you could, you know, do this professionally, be a professional pizza maker. Was there a pizza that you made that you're like, yeah, I can definitely do this? I suppose the one that comes to mind happened after I opened the restaurant. So I think we're talking about, I'm thinking of it differently than you're speaking of it. I don't think there was a one pizza. There was one time I remember like, I had, I felt like I had made a pizza that no one ever made before. And that, that felt really good to me. You know, like that's, I think that's always been, you know, part of my goal. I like original thoughts. I like original perspectives. And that's why I try not to follow recipes to, I'll use them to help me get where I'm going, but I don't use them to be where I'm going. But there's a pizza that we have in the winter that's called Under a Sun that's seen it all before. And it kind of reflects that idea of, you know, pizza is such an old tradition, nothing new under the sun. It's a, um, a butternut squash based pizza. So it's got a butternut squash base, fresh mozzarella, pepperoni bacon, feta, caramelized onion, pepperdu, a little bit of chipotle powder, and then a balsamic reduction uh, post-bake. And I think that's probably the one that as a chef's choice creator, that might be one of my favorites. Also, uh, that we have a, a mushroom pizza called the Clinton Villain. And the Clinton villain with pepperoni is substantially delicious. 
Um, I think that's probably my favorite from a simplicity standpoint, Quentin Dillon plus pepperoni. But under a son that's seen it all before, I think that's kind of like where my heart really realized that I could do whatever I wanted and it could be wonderful and new. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, was there an episode moment scene that stands out to you about him? If you weren't, was there another person that would be a culinary personality, whether it's a Julia Child, a Guy Fieri, whatever that you always gravitated towards? Well, again, I will say that, you know, I've been one that just puts my head down and discovers, and I'm very self-discovery oriented in every aspect of my life. That's what keeps me interested. That's what keeps me joyful. That's what keeps me growing and moving forward in my path and not in somebody else's path. This is indicative of my whole life. There is nothing that I'm trying to recreate ever. But if there was somebody who I kind of captured and captivated me uh, more than any other, and I can't even remember the guy's name now, this shows you how you know connected I am to these kinds of things. He was on Chef's Table, the first season of Chef's Table. He was a Patagonian. Oh, Francis Ballman. Is that what his name is? He's the fire guy? Yep. That, the freedom with which he interacted with food and fire ignited my passion, uh, you know, when I received it in a way that no one had ever. I was already in the pizza industry. I was already cooking with fire. I had already dedicated myself to the solid state fuel art. I have a, a wood stove at my house. You know, I cook breakfast on it. I just made some turkey soup on it yesterday. I cook with fire. When I have a grill outside, I put wood in it and, you know, start it ahead of time. But certainly that person had an air of freedom and exploration and creativity that was just remarkable. And uh, I think he has probably touched my passion and closer and more illuminatorily than any other. So what's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It's been ghostly in my head the whole time. Like, I have no idea. You know, how do you know what's enough? How do you know what's enough? How do you know what's enough? And that could be growth. That could be money. That could be reception. That could be love. That could be, you know, seating. That could be food. I don't know. Menu items. How do you know what's enough? How do you know what's enough in your world? If I may ask that question, since I'm asking, coming up with a question, how do you know what's enough? You, I don't know what you do for a living. I don't know what kind of money you make or what kind of world you live in, but how do you know when to stop? How do you know what's enough? I mean, I would say, you know, if I'm answering that question, I'm very simplistic. You know, I'm a minimalist in terms of everything that I try and do outside of work is something that I truly enjoy. So because I have a tendency to to deep dive and obsess over things that, you know, I, I get into, whether there's probably only a handful of things that, you know, I really like focus and enjoy on and everything else is kind of ancillary noise, you know, you know, very selective of things that I would watch on TV. Like if I'm going to invest, you know, this hour in this TV show, like there has to be some reward or, or something like that for me. So I think that kind of dictates it for me. Like how do I know when it, what's enough is really, do I get enjoyment out of it? And you think that's the, the guiding light for you is enjoyment? Why bother doing something that you don't like? Like I've never quite understood that, you know, I mean, I get everybody has obligations and things like that, but if you really don't like doing something, then it's like, why are you wasting your time doing that? You know, you have kids. We have one on the way. Yeah. Oh shit. Well, wait till you have to do all that dumb ass shit. You're like, why would I do it if I don't enjoy it? Well, guess what? You're going to fucking do things you don't enjoy with those kids. Oh, I know. I know that's, I know that's coming, but until then. 
One on the way. That's exciting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. Are you intimidated by it? No, I mean, I think in my mind, I'm just kind of like, kind of figure it out as you go, because that's kind of how everybody does it. I mean, you could read 20 different books about it, but reading the book versus actually having to do it, you know, same thing as going to school or whatever, or doing any sort of training program, you could read everything about it. But until you actually do it, it's, it's just different. Yeah, well, and that's why I answered the question about, you know, should I pay for school or should I, you know, not? I think my answer is very similar that like, you're never going to learn more than doing it. So, you know, when it was, do I pay for school or do I make pizza and fuck up a million times? The answer in my world was fuck up a million times because I think, you know, some of the best people in the industry learn what not to do by not, by doing those things. And, you know, like there's a, a guy that works at Gourmet right now, Chef David, who, uh, he was like, hey, 90% of cooking is knowing what not to do. And the only reason you know that is by doing it. That's parenting. That's that's all of it. And that's how I feel about the restaurant industry. And that's why I embrace the doing rather than the mimicry or the learning from others. There's always a reason to look at the library or, you know, look at your peers. You know, someday you're going to have a problem with your kids and you're going to be like, fuck, I just, I have no idea how to, you know, do this. And it's like, oh, well, I'm not, you know, regimented sleeper, blah, blah, blah. We're not picking up the cues. It's always, there's always a reason to, to hear other people's thoughts and opinions, but it's important, I think, in, in anybody who's trying to be their authentic selves to allow those answers to come uh, from the moment, from inside. If there's one thing that I would, I think, say that is most important in the world is just to be your authentic self, whatever that is. And even if it's a shitty authentic self, if you're authentic, you'll find out that you're shitty and you'll eventually find something else, hopefully, hopefully. Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Uh, social media, the most active we are is on Instagram, um, 936 North 4th Street, Columbus, Ohio, 43201, 614-725-2115. Call for a good time. We deliver stuff on DoorDash. You can sit at our bar and have wonderful conversations. Sitting on the patio, having wonderful conversations in the summer. That's us. We got a website, but uh, you know, it's just there because you have to have a website. So when you type in gourmetpizza.com, we're there, but I don't really care too much about that website. And if you're going to order to go, I would encourage you to call into the restaurant and pick it up yourself instead of using the DoorDash, just because DoorDash takes a sizable chunk out of the profits for any restaurant. I'm okay with thinking we have a relationship that makes me feel all right. If there's an option, I would just say, come pick it up to come see us and talk to us and you know all that stuff. But I don't discourage people from using DoorDash. We partnered with them. I think they're a wonderful option for us through the pandemic. I think it's important to acknowledge that they're doing a service that connects us to people in a way that we could never do on our own. I got nothing but love for them. So I, I hear what you're saying and I, I, I can acknowledge the kind of grassroots, uh, you know, thought processes that go into that, but uh, we wouldn't partner with them if it didn't make sense. But I mean, you know, if there's an option and you have the option, come in. I love people. I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to squeeze your little cheeks. Are you guys open every day? Closed on Monday, uh, noon to nine, Tuesday through Sunday. It's great pizza. So if you haven't had it, I encourage you guys to go try it out. I'm looking at you individuals. Do it. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I'm glad we got to finally do this. Yeah. I mean, it was chaotic. You know, the refrigeration breaking last week was just a, a long line of fucking complications that the restaurant industry offers. I'm glad, you know, that as part of the interview process that we couldn't do it last week because the refrigeration broke just tells that story of the struggles are real. 
but yeah, I mean, it's among our favorite, you know, pizza spots. And whenever you see a, an order come through, that's, I think my wife usually orders like, it's like pepperoni, sausage, and pepidou. That's probably us. Yeah. I've seen that order a few times. That's certainly. That's probably us. All right. I got my eyes out. A big thanks again to Chef Nick Gore for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his morning before rolling into the pizza shop and start spinning some dough and making some pizzas. Uh, again, if you haven't checked them out, make sure to. They're right off of 4th Street in Italian Village. Uh, you can stop in and sit at the bar. They got tables that you can sit, eat at, uh, order a pizza. Like he said, you can do it through DoorDash or stuff. I'm not a fan of those you know, apps because they do take like 30% off the top from the restaurant. So you can call ahead, order pizza, go pick it up. They have parking right out front, temporary parking. You know, you can throw your flashers on. There's also a parking lot around the corner down that street. It's like the Veritas Church parking lot, but there's like an apartment complex there. You can park there too as well. Uh, I've done it before. I've never had any issues. So make sure to get over, check them out, help uh, support a local pizza place. It's amazing pizza, so I uh, can't recommend it enough. But again, follow them on Instagram at Gourmet Pizza. Follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com for all chef profiles, past episodes of the podcast. All those are in the feed too as well. So if you subscribe or follow to the podcast, whatever platform that you use, you can find all the old episodes of Chefs and Guests everybody we had on before. As long as you're followed, subscribed, the new one will download on Thursdays, Thursday mornings, goes out at 1 a.m. We do that at 1 a.m. just because a lot of restaurant people work. That's roughly when they're getting off or maybe they get off a little bit before then. And they're usually pretty wired, so they're going to be up for a couple hours. So we figure like, hey, you know, that'd be pretty cool if they kind of got first dibs on the episode. And also just I've worked third shift before and it fucking sucks. I know how like rough the 2.30 to like 5 a.m. time frame can be. And so anybody that's out there working third shift, like just to help pass the time, you know, whatever you're doing, we figure we drop it 1 a.m. So that's kind of why we do that. So that's when it comes out, but we throw stuff up on Instagram so everybody knows, you know, once it's there. But uh, if you follow the podcast or subscribe to it, it'll drop in your feed as soon as it comes out. So when you wake up, it's right there. And maybe you just have to click a download button or something like that. But that's it for this week. More episodes on the way. Appreciate everybody listening. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you've been here for a while, uh, thanks for still being here. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you guys next week.